0: It's spring, blood red poppies are pushing through the muddy soil, pink almond blossoms are are blooming in bouquets and and gardens and, and in fields and along the roads. The heavy winter rains that have carpeted the landscape green and have called barren branches to life. Well, those rains have begun to slow down and soon they will stop completely bowing down to the summer's heat. Now the people of the land will be praying that the rainfall will, will keep them going throughout the hot summer months, will bring the crops to fruition. It's a beautiful season in Jerusalem. The weather's not too hot, it's, it's not too cold, it's, it's perfect really. It's a lot like here, actually. The, the weather, the, the climate is very similar. The geography is, is very similar. When you think about the latitude, uh, latitudinally, uh, Jerusalem is 37 degrees north latitude, and we are 31 degrees north here in Pleasanton, so um, similar in latitude, also uh, in location from the ocean. Jerusalem's about 30-ish miles from the Mediterranean. We're just under 30 miles from the coast. So similar conditions, similar seasons. Well, it's spring. It's spring. It is amidst this season in which life comes from the ground. It is amidst this beautiful time, these days of late March to to mid-April, that David steps onto his roof, that David looks, that David sees, and a dark desire is born, and the story of David takes A terrible turn. So today we approach not only a famous text of scripture, but it's an infamous one. It's a story and a text that troubles us, rightfully so. It's a story and a text that puzzles us. How do we get here? How do we get here? Recall last Sunday when we were exploring the life of David, we saw that this king is ruling and reigning on a throne of a united Israel. This anointed shepherd boy has passed test after, after test, and now he has shown himself to lavish loving kindness on his enemies, exhibiting the very character and qualities of God himself. He is the preeminent golden boy, the king And now this? How how do we get here? How do we get to this darkening scene one spring evening on the rooftop of the palace? How could things fall so hard? How could things go so terribly wrong? Well, let's let the scriptures lead us into further clarity because Lord knows we need it. I need it. Verse 1. Verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, with all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites, and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It's important to our author that we know the time of year. It's spring. For this is the time of year that the kings go out to battle. Now, why is that? Well, the heavy rains are over. What does that mean that the heavy rains are over? Well, the roads are not going to be as mushy and muddy as they have been, and less mushy and less muddy roads are easier for troops to travel on. I mean, muddy fields, they are wartime nightmares. Heavy rains have a way of causing battle strategies to fall, to falter. But there's issues to deal with. And now that the roads are clear, David has issues to deal with. There are geopolitical, international issues to deal with. And there are some remaining, lingering animosities from some people that were called the Ammonites. So these need to be dealt with. Now David, David was one who was active, who was one who would go into battle, right? This is the young boy who ran towards the giant. This is the one who went into battle over and over and over again to do the right thing. But this time, not so much. This time he sends somebody else in his place, in his stead. He sends Joab to lead the troops. David goes passive. He sends Joab, the commander of his army, to go. Now, notice the word sent. I underlined it there, it's a little bit hard to see, Um, but that word sent carries the story forward. That word sent is in this text so many times. Sent, 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 sent messengers, sent people, sent messages, sent orders, sent oracles from God. People sent on behalf of other people. It's a key theme, it's a key theme. So off Joab goes to deal with the enemies threatening the peace. And David remains. He remains in Jerusalem. He's not in an army tent. He's in a plush palace. He's not charging forward on a horse towards his enemies. He's sleeping on a cushy royal couch. He's taking a catnap, we find out. He's sleeping away the afternoon. He's lazing about. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon. That word afternoon is also evening. Uh, it can be translated as evening or eventide, like twilight. So he's been sleeping the day away. Nighttime comes and he's getting up. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, um, that, that he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof uh, a woman bathing. Um, this goes bad real fast, guys. Um, the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So here's what's going on. David gets up off of his couch that he's been on all afternoon, idling the day away. He heads up to the roof, the sky is darkening, the gathering green and gold, heading towards the deep blue of evening and he's, looking it's quite a view from up here and he gets to see uh, the the gem of the city of jerusalem all out laid out before him and as the, this evening goes dark the story goes dark as the evening gets darker now david's not up on this roof to pray as normal <clears throat> that's what rooftops were often used for With god's people we find people praying on the rooftops Maybe he was up there to pray, but it's a little bit more the P-R-E-Y kind. He has something in his heart. He's seeking, he's searching for something. His heart is not God conscious, it's self-concerned. He's praying for something to fill him up. So David goes into voyeur mode, looking down on the buildings, the glowing candlelight coming from the houses in their courtyards, and he's scanning, but then the scanning stops. Right? His gaze is arrested. A woman is bathing. Now, I need to pause. I need to break into the story here. Where is this woman bathing? So many assume she's on a rooftop. I've heard it and read about it time and time again that she's on a rooftop. But tell me, where in the text does it say that? It doesn't. It's an assumption brought to the text What we have here is not a woman trying to seduce a king. Not some exhibitionist. This is just a plain bad reading. We have a woman here likely in the privacy of her own home through a lit window or maybe in her own courtyard bath that she thought was secluded, washing, ritually cleansing after her period, minding her own business. And David's gaze unrightfully preys upon her. And he doesn't turn away. He leans in, her beauty clear even in the twilight. So what does he do? What does this very married man do? And I say he's very married because he has at least seven wives at this point. Well, David sent for more information to find out who she was. The report comes back. This is Bathsheba. What if it stopped there? What if he turned away? What if he had never sent for more information? What if he didn't do more research? What if he didn't try to find out our name? What if he didn't take that small, seemingly innocent step of trying to find out just a little bit more? What if he didn't make that click or make that scroll or or make that question turn into some kind of answer-giving response? What if... Things would have changed, things would have changed. Well, the report comes back, this is, this is Bathsheba. Notice the messenger's words, is not this Bathsheba? That's odd. Why does he say that, is not this Bathsheba? Why does he say it like that? Well, he says it like that because he knows something that we generally don't know when we read this text. And do you know what that is? David knows who Bathsheba is. David knows who Bathsheba is, she's no stranger to him. David knows her. Look at this. She is the granddaughter of Ahithophel. Who is Ahithophel? He is one of David's closest counselors who's been in the palace with David. She is the daughter of Eliam. Who is Eliam? He is one of David's 30 men, one of his closest friends for decades. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, a friend and fellow soldier, also one of David's mighty men. David knows her. He might not have recognized her via the twilight, but now he knows who she is. And when you do all the age calculation based on Ahithophel being her grandfather and all those things, don't have time for it. Bathsheba is a great deal younger than him. David is, is 20 years into his kingship, he's probably about 49 at this time. Bathsheba is at least two decades younger. David has likely seen her toddling through the palace as a toddler on her grandfather's knee at some point. There's so many implications. We do not have time. There's so many implications. But this, as you all know, leads to a case of sexual abuse. And when you look at the stats, 93% of cases of sexual abuse occur by an acquaintance or somebody well-known. They're not a stranger. It's in the scriptures, too. It's in the scriptures, too. On we go, verse 4 through 5. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Okay, so David sends messengers. And he takes her, he lays with her, and this is no act of consensual adultery. This is a sexual violation she is dismissed with when done, and she goes home. See, she knew David, and he knew her. She likely thought she was going to the palace to hear what terrible news about her husband who was on the front. What so many widows have heard before, I'm sorry to tell you, but your husband has died in battle. She likely thought she was going to hear that or to have audience with the king that she, she well knew, but then she leaves shock and shock and uh, traumatized from what's happened. And a few weeks later, what do we hear? Well, we hear the voice of this voiceless woman. She speaks and we hear the words, I am pregnant. She sends the words, I am pregnant. Now notice that bit about the uncleanness. That might make us uncomfortable to talk about here in church service, but this is God's word, so we talk. According to the law, she was going about a ritual cleansing during, during her bathing. She was, she was following the law while David was breaking it. David breaks the law as he lusts upon her while she is following God's word. By the way, this is also included in there just to, just to make sure say, to say like she was not pregnant before this, right? Based on everything that's going on, we know she wasn't pregnant and then David, okay. Now, the darkening story goes darker, verses six through eight. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how it was going out there in battle. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and and wash your feet, a euphemism for making love to his wife. And then... It says this, and Uriah went out to the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. Okay, what's this? Well, this is gross. Uh, David sends word to Joab and says, bring Uriah, her husband, home. And he does this under the pretense of a war report. I want to hear what's going on out there. So there's lying, there's scheming, there's, there's manipulating, right? He wants Uriah to go sleep with Bathsheba to hide his own sin. And he even sends some kind of gift, possibly to set the mood for a romantic evening, maybe some flowers and some chocolate with Uriah. Have a good night. It's crafty, it's, it's gross. Look at verse nine. But Uriah, <laughs> but Uriah, oh, he messes everything up for this David. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, wait, wait, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark, the ark and Israel and Judah, they dwell in booths and and tents on the battlefield. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So, look, Uriah does not go home, sleep with his wife. There's this virtue in this this man, and he says, like, while my brothers are on the battlefield, like, I'm going to be in solidarity with them. I'm at war, David. And and the ark of God's presence is out on the field, David. God's presence is out there. I'm not going to do this while they're out there fighting for the peace. David's shameful actions are shamed by Uriah's virtue so this righteous response then leads to david growing even more uh, twisted in his scheming look at verses 12 through 13 then david said to uriah remain here today also and tomorrow i will send you back so uriah remained in jerusalem that day and the next and david invited him and he ate in his presence and he drank so that he made him drunk he's boozing up his friend And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to the house. So David tries to lower Uriah's defenses, right? He um, does this under the pretense of communion, spending time with Uriah, but he's just getting him drunk. But still Uriah acts in solidarity with with the soldiers. David's manipulations are foiled. Now the story gets even darker and even, even more broken. Told you, some shadows today. We're walking through some shadows. Are you with me? Are we here together? We're heading to the light, I promise you. I promise you. Verses 14 and 15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to the uh, sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that they may strike him down and that he'd die. David's about to murder One of his mighty men who's been faithful to him. Do you see how sin acts like a fracture in a windshield? An unfixed fracture in a windshield, what does it do? It spreads, it sprawls, it acts like cancer. A cancer cell growing, multiplying, and damaging if it is not eradicated. In order to cover up sin, deception and manipulation and misuse of power are used. When you hide sin, you multiply sin. Hidden sin is multiplied sin. It grows in the darkness like mold. And well, it happens... David's calculated murder with the help of his intrigue, partner in crime, Joab. It's accomplished. Uriah is sent close to the city with a suicide mission. They should not go towards the walls of the city, be that close, because what's on top of the walls of a city, right? The archers. But they're sent in, so Uriah goes in, and he is killed. There it is. Sin brings death. Sin brings death death the wages of sin are death and you know what we often miss in the story what i've missed it for years is is that other men are killed with uriah it's not just him because a whole troop is sent in to like cover up the whole thing so uriah is killed but who else is killed innocent soldiers who are fighting on david's behalf who are fighting on god's behalf they are killed collateral damage sin brings collateral damage into the lives of your family and your friends It may start out as some kind of private thing, but it doesn't remain that way. It spreads, it sprawls. So more blood is on David's hands than just Uriah's blood. Our sin damages others. We can try to hide that fact from ourselves all day long, but it it will out. It will out. So the Trail of Tears continues now. Bathsheba mourns her husband. Eventually, David takes her as his wife. The baby is born, and the child dies. Heartbreak upon heartbreak upon heartbreak. This is what sin does. Sin, by the way, you see, is not just a theological word, an unpopular word that we use to call um, things that are fun, but God doesn't like arbitrarily and tells us not to do them, right? Right? Sin isn't just what we call the the good stuff that God doesn't want us to do. That's not what sin is. Sin is what distorts good order and design. Sin is what vandalizes creation. Sin is what mars the artist's beautiful intent. Sin is that which dehumanizes us and has us dehumanize other people and use them as objects for our aims. Sin disintegrates us, mind, body, soul. It disintegrates communities. It disintegrates the world. Sin steals from us taking life and taking a flourishing. And sin is that which looks shiny and beautiful and good, but then turns out to be a poison. Now, our story doesn't end in the hopelessness of sin. God comes, and when God comes, things change. God comes to confront and to restore, for God now does some sending of his own. Look at chapter 12, pick up at verse one. God is on the move. We have a good God. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor, the rich man had very many flocks and herds. Oh, but the poor man, he had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up. It grew up with him, with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his, his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Mark that. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's not liking this. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this, he deserves to die he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. The name Bathsheba in Hebrew, Bathsheba, means daughter, daughter of the oath, daughter. The lamb was like a daughter. There's clues in Nathan's incredibly well-told parable. God sends a prophet with a word, a prophet with a spirit-empowered story that will sneak past David's self-protective armor. And sometimes it takes a timely divine story to hit our heart, to penetrate through the armor. And we see that happening here. Nathan, David's pastor, he's a savvy storyteller. And Nathan's a gift to David, actually, we'll see. But the name Nathan means a gift. See, David's the rich man, isn't he? Like, we see what's happening here. David's the rich man. He is the rich man who owns all these flocks, but in his wickedness, he takes the one beloved, you lamb of the poor man. And who is the poor man in the parable? Uriah. 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 The truth veiled in the parable has David righteously hopping mad. He's tick. I just see him, like, you know, that, the vein pulsing in the neck right now? Like, that's David, he's like, this is is not okay. Kill that no good lamb grabbing guy. Take him out, it's not right. And in the wake of those raging words, God's man, the prophet, speaks some of the most piercing and terrifying words I think ever spoken. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You, David. You were the man. And David struck. David struck. Look what happens. He's called to account. God calls sin to account. Verses seven through nine. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. But God gets specific, He calls out the sin. God's not okay with hurting and damaging other people. God's not okay with the vandalization of his cosmos. God's not okay with injustice. God's not okay with corruption. God's not okay with the things that are destroying this world in your soul. God's not okay with them. And he calls them out because he loves us. He calls them out because he's good. So God sees and sin will be found out. God sees, and when we pretend like God can't see who we are or what we're doing, we're not treating God like he's God. God sees. He knows. Truth will out. And not only is he held to account, but then we see consequences. Consequences. 10 through 12, so truth, now consequences. Consequences. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. This is about to get real hard, just so you know. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly but I will do the same before all Israel and before the sun. We're gonna get into that with Absalom next week. And, and the, the sins of the father and the deformation that happens in a family of origin that is carried on through generations unless God's grace shatters that and breaks that and reshapes people in the image of Christ. We're gonna get on into that next week. But the point right now is there are consequences to sin. There is absolutely forgiveness. But there are consequences. Consequences remain. Now we come to confession. Look at verse 13 through 15. David said to Nathan... I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who was born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. <laughs> There's so many times this week, my friends, I was reading through this and I was like, passage change. We're going to preach on something else this week. There's things in here we do not have the the time to dig into today, but this is God's word and there is much in here for us to learn. Confession. David doesn't go the way of Saul and make excuses. David doesn't go the way of Adam here and blame shift and be like, "Uh, ah, it's Bathsheba's fault. You gave her to me. Like that timing, that was on you, Lord. He He doesn't do the blame shifting. He says, I've done this. I have done this. And we know this is a true heartbroken, contrite a confession because we read about it in Psalm 51. Read Psalm 51 this week. It is the, the confession psalm based upon what's happened here. Psalm 51. So, con- confession is necessary. It's absolutely necessary to, to speak the truth about our condition. So, here's, here's my question now how do we process all the ugliness we just heard? It's heavy. It's heavy is there any good news in here for us to hear? Is there any crooked road in here that leads us to Jesus? And there is. There is good news. So here's how we're going to go about it. First, what we need to understand is this. This is another fall scene. I'm not talking spring, fall, summer. I'm talking the fall. Okay, Genesis chapter 3. Look at at what happens here. Pastor Dane mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and we're going to Press into it a little bit further. Genesis chapter 3, 6 through 7. This is the fall in the Garden of Eden. Let me read a few verses. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, Hebrew, tov, for food, and that it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was to be desired, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And then she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Saw, good, took, ate, and then they hid. Move to Samuel, Second Samuel, eleven, verse two. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, which happens to be the word tov, or good. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one sent is said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, his wife Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. You see the overlapping parallels, right? You see, it's it's Eden 2.0. David's fall is yet another Eden-like fall. David's fall is another Eden-like fall, showing that David is not the second Adam. He's not the long-awaited serpent crusher that is promised in Genesis 3 by God that will come and take care of all the problems and be the true king of peace. David, who had such high hopes of being the one, the hero, he's not. He's not. The hero and by the way notice how deep this repetition of themes goes so in Genesis 3 we have um, reaching out grabbing taking what is not yours right and then the fall that's Genesis 3 do you remember what story happens in Genesis 4 help me out Cain and Abel which is a story of a brother doing what killing a brother what do we have here in Samuel David reaches out, grabbing unlawfully, taking what is not his, hiding it. And what's the next part of the story? Killing his brother, fratricide. This is Genesis 3 and 4 in in 2 Samuel. It's on repeat. The broken record of human sin is just on repeat. So what hope do we have? And what are we to learn from this? Well, at this point, here's what I want to do. I want to tell you about a curious and common phenomenon that happens with preaching and sermons. Okay? There's a curious and common phenomenon that happens with preaching sermons. I'm going to call it the somebody else syndrome. Maybe I don't even need to tell you what I'm about to tell you. And here's how it goes you finish preaching a sermon like a sermon on joyful generosity, and someone comes up to you afterwards and they're like, what a timely word. Such a good word. Uh, Pastor, you know what? The whole time I was thinking about my husband, <laughs> joyful, generosity, I like he, he wasn't here, I'm going to send him the sermon. Or, or say it's a sermon on unhurried presence. Afterwards, someone will be like, oh, so, such a needed word. Couldn't help but to think of my son. He's just always on his phone, always going, always like, I'm going to send them the sermon. I'm going to send them the sermon. could not help but to think of them. Here's the point. So often, we hear a sermon, we hear God's word, we read God's word, and we have this defense mechanism in us, right? This defense mechanism in us that has us hiding behind fig leaves, and suddenly we go, them. Them. Maybe we've been sitting in the sermon thinking the whole time about somebody who should be here at church hearing the sermon. Thinking about somebody else mode, voyeur mode. We're watching, it's third person mode. It's third person mode. And I think we can really easily go into third person mode with David, don't you? We can really easily go into third person mode and go, this is so gross, this is so disgusting. How could David, how could they? Or how could this other person? But it seems to me that these words of Nathan leap up off this page. And they resound throughout the ages. They resound from generation to generation. Again, alive and anew from person to person and turn to us today. And they call out to us, you are the man. You are the woman. You, like David, have sinned. You, like David, need a great savior. Because... David, he was appalled at Nathan's parable, but he couldn't see himself in it. Maybe we're appalled at the story of David, but we haven't yet seen ourselves in it. Someone else syndrome. It's easy to self protect. David didn't see the sermon was about him. And all too often, we don't see that this story, yes, of course it's about David, my friends, but it's about me. It's aimed at me and it's aimed at you. That's why it's in here in scripture because we have a propensity to see, to take, to consume and to hide and to multiply sin and then get mad about, at God about the whole thing. We have a need for confession. We need to move from a third person hearing, David, to a second person hearing, you're the man, to a first person, God have mercy on me, A sinner. So I want to make this clear. This text is divinely tailored. I believe this text is divinely tailored to teach us about the dark reality of our sin nature and the deep need for salvation. This is a story about the, the irretractable sin nature of humanity that we can't get out of ourselves unless God does something to us. Because again, the story arc of David, David is like, he's, he's at the top of his golden rule and his reign. And we just go through his track record, and we're like, dude, this guy lives a charmed life. He's just knocking it out of the park. And this is going so great for him. But then, then the fall. No one is immune to sin. David's feet are made of clay, friends. So are ours. So are ours. In other words, he's like Adam. He's fallen short. But here's the good news. Here's here's the good news, verse 13. Did you catch it? David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. How? How? How can God do that? How has He put away His sin? Through the forthcoming Son that dies. And I don't mean the child. I mean through David's forthcoming son, King Jesus, who though was innocent, took upon himself the sins of David and all of us and died as a substitute, the one who was sent from heaven to bless us by dying in our place. And here is where we have a photo negative, a photo negative of Jesus in this story. How does the story point to Jesus? like a photo negative. Watch this. Reverse the darkness of the story of David and you get the lightness and the brilliance of Jesus. David is passive, not fighting on behalf of his people. Jesus is on mission, actively bringing the kingdom of heaven. David coerces union, abusing his power and abusing Bathsheba. Jesus brings compassionate gentleness, using his power to love and to bless his bride. David tries to control through manipulation and covering his shame. Jesus makes himself vulnerable and covers the shame of others. David is willing to have many die for the one, him. Jesus, the one, is willing to die for the many. And five, David is yet another Adam figure who fails and brings death. Jesus is the second Adam, the true faithful one who brings life. This points us to our need for Jesus. Jesus is the man that we need. And do you remember Pilate's words? When they're about to crucify Jesus, Pilate parades Jesus out in front of the mob that's 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 frothing at the mouth and chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And there's Jesus, right, all bloodied up, and, and he's got his crown of thorns. And what does Pilate say? Behold the man. Behold the man. The man who's taking the, the judgment, the man who will be the, the one to fulfill what Genesis 3 talks about, that we need to be saved by a Messiah who takes our place. Jesus is the man who takes our place. He is the man. And so you, what you have here is you have the gospel in two sentences. You are the man and behold the man. You are the man and behold the man. We are great sinners, sinners, Super unpopular to say that. We are great sinners. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus is a great savior and he has come and he has taken our place. Behold, you are the man. You are the woman, but Jesus is the man. Your healer, your restorer, your redeemer, your savior. So friends, how, how did David's sins get put away because he trusted in God and the Father sent his Son to put all our sins away. And so as followers of Jesus, we confess our sins. We confess our sins. We acknowledge them. We walk in the light. We don't hide them. And we look to the man. We look to our Savior. We look to our only hope. We ask him to search our hearts to help us to see what's inside and have the courage to speak it. And so my question for you today is: as I close is, what sin do we need to repent of? What sin is, is in our lives that's, that's hiding? What's in there? What's in there? What is it that you think you need to hide in order to protect your life, but really it's destroying your life? What sin do you need to repent of? Confess it. Confess it and gaze upon Jesus Behold the man bleeding on the cross for you, blood bright like the scarlet poppies of spring. Behold the man who went into the grave to bury your sins there so they would never rise. Behold the man who rose from the dead to bring new life, out of the ground. Behold the faithful king who comes to bring life to his bride. Behold Jesus, Heavenly Father. We praise you, thank you, Lord. This is a hard word today, but a good word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your good news. We thank you that you love us enough, that you send us the gift of your word, the Nathan of your word, that that we would speak the truth, and be cleansed and be freed and live the life that we were meant to live, conformed to the image of King Jesus. So Lord, wherever our hearts are today, whether they're really heavy right now or there's great joy because uh, we know what we've been released from and now we have true life. Lord, would you meet us in this moment of coming to this table of grace and may joy result, may we walk in the light as a result of stepping through these shadows. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.